welcome. We're going to be a little more disciplined today. I am. We're praying for all of us who are going to be more disciplined. So we're going to start with prayer. Maybe that will help me out. That's impressive. Good thing. Good prayer? Is that a good thing? Yes. So why don't we pray this Would you care to pray for us? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to get together and to learn and discuss. And we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts that we would learn well. We pray that um, what we learn tonight would be uh, going to our souls and, and change us to be people who love you more and, to, and know you more and live uh, like that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So as you know, we were talking about heaven. And um, who, who can help me a little bit before we give these few questions? What when I say when I think of the covenant, why would that be a whole category in our confession? Do you think what was the significance of this idea of covenant? It's one of the few few confessions of faith, by the way, that address it uh, explicitly, which is really profound. So, what do you think? What's the what, why is this topic so important in a confession of faith? What relevance would it have, do you think, to our lives and our faith? Yeah. Well, a covenant is essentially like a, it, especially historically, it was a legal binding agreement yeah. between two parties. And to refer to our scriptures as covenants is effectively saying that we are in a contract with God. Yeah, good. And, and where is the covenant in the Bible? There you go. That's, I'm glad you laughed. That's a, that's a good sign. It's, it, it is a joke almost. Uh, it's where's the water in the ocean? Um, that's the nature of our Bible. The whole Bible is covenant. Um, new covenant, old covenant, but a covenant. And um, and so it really does, it's, it knows the placement of this chapter then in chapter, what was before this chapter? Remember? What were we talking about? Yeah, we're talking about how to live life, sanctification. And, and then before that, of course, the whole doctrines of justification, etc. And and then we're going to get into Christian liberty and and, and how, you know what are we what exactly have we been set free from and how does that relate to covenant? You see, and so it's very crucial in the area of Christian ethics. You could have had a comment, you know, whole topic here on ethics. This would be your Christian ethics sort of source, at least one source of it. How do we do ethics? How do we discern between what is ethically right and wrong in the New Covenant, and how does that relate to the Old Covenant? So with that, um, let's look at some of these, these questions, see what you think. Um, I obviously tried to tap into some, some of the kind of common uh, feel, you know, feelings that people have when they engage covenant. The first being this issue of um, the tension, if you will. Uh, let me get mine, actually, my, there it is. Is the Old Covenant, Old Testament, and New Testament the same religion or two different religions? How would you explain the difference? So, what do you think? Two religions or one? Is well, Judaism and Christianity two religions or one? Well, I think that's a different What were you going to say? I said the same thing. I said I think you just asked two different questions. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one's the fulfillment of the other. Okay, one's the fulfillment of the other. Good. So there's a fulfillment motif. 
Can you quote a scripture that, that tells you that pretty clearly? Anybody have one on their head? When Christ came, preached and proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God, chapter, what is it? Huh? You didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. There it is. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's a really crucial statement. Uh, that that in Matthew becomes a very central theme. That he, you know, it, that by the way, that's your interpretive principle. When you start reading through the Beatitudes and the, and the Sermon on the Mount and all this ethical mm-hmm. stuff, well, you better read that carefully within that paradigm because when he says things like uh, when you come to the altar and don't do this and you know, well, you better start. Okay, what does the old covenant teach about that? And how has he fulfilled it? Or Sabbath and the controversy he had about Sabbath. What, what would that mean to fulfill? And what was he trying to direct you to? How do we pray the Lord's Prayer? Are you putting that through an Old Covenant, New Covenant paradigm? Most Christians don't. They assume that's a New Covenant prayer. No, it isn't. It's an Old Covenant prayer. A prayer for the Messiah. He's the answer. He's saying to these people, now if you understood the Old Testament, if you understood you know, how to pray, you, you would be asking me this. And then he prays the Messianic prayer. The kingdom of God. Come. And so... Uh, so it's an amazing thing. So, so with this statement then, is the Old Testament, New Testament the same religion? Or, and I use Testament and Covenant interchangeably. Okay. Uh, how do you explain the difference? Well, so what is the difference between the two? You said one is, one is a fulfillment of the other. Okay, that's good. Any other thoughts? One foreshadows the other. One foreshadows the other. So that focus on the first. I mean, what about these ethical issues? I mean, is there holy war in the Old Testament? They never said it. As I remember what? reading. I don't ever remember reading holy war. Oh, the word, oh no. But but it's clear. Look at look what I even quote. This is Yahweh's war. What do you call that? You know, and, and there was and it was nation it was nations. I mean it was a physical geopolitical war. Well And it was a holy war. Actually I think you could really use that word, you know. I mean though Yahweh I mean, is I am is the tetragrammaton, or yeah. and so it still is God's war. I think it's not necessarily pointing as the holy war. It is just I mean, God is holy, but it's yeah. His war. It's it's His. It's saying that He's the one who's guiding. And stuff well, like the point that. I'm and the way I look at it that yeah, way versus yeah. the well, holy. Well, that's fine, but the point is clear that when He's talking about holy war, He's telling we go shot people's heads off. Yeah, and we're aware. Of that. So now, how do we how do we deal? That's the question. I don't want to. How do we deal with that? Is that so? Should we be in crusades and and go take uh, do what the Islamic State still is doing and many some what jihad and and this kind of jihad? Oh, the same sort of things going on in, in Muslim faith, isn't it? Mm-hmm. How do we understand jihad? There is a type of uh, you know Islamism that that's going to see jihad in one way, and there's another that's going to see it in another way. No, I mean, it's part of the example of God showing it throughout the Old Testament is how he, how we are separated from God in, in using that example, unless if we accept God into our lives. And it's just a, it's an example of God even fulfilling the promise of us having that relationship with God. Okay, uh, else? So I think we, we see that God pours out wrath on people more immediately in the Old Testament, and... Um, particularly wrath on the nations against Israel. Okay, and there's people. a I mean, it's pretty. Um, I mean, they get bad trouble when they don't go destroy old gen- when they don't do genocide. Right. And, okay, and now go do genocide on these people. And, and now he's not saying, "Hey, you guys go 
accomplish my justice. I've already done that in Christ. Okay. Is there holy war in the New Testament? Spiritual holy war. Okay, there is. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about warfare and us being in war. Yeah. So now, how do you how do you relate this to one religion? There's one religion. Come on, guys. You guys are telling me one religion? Are you kidding me? The New Covenant says there's different weapons than what are used well, in, 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 the old, in the Old Covenant. Well, it's no. a different religion. No. Use different, I mean, it's a whole different religious system. We don't go, no, we we don't go, ta- ta- we don't go attacking uh, nations in the New Testament, do we? We we uh, war against uh, powers and principalities. All right, so you're making my point. It's a different religion from the old. The Old Testament they warred against nation states and the enemies of God. We know more about the enemy. What did you say? I said the enemies of God they warred against. They were okay. So we so so other going on. That's good. That's good. Well, I mean, we know we are enemies of God until All right. there's, a so you, there, there's a word that I'm still so. waiting for so and I'm trying to eke it out of you geopolitical geopolitical one war was geopolitical the, the, well the, the Old Testament was more geopolitical and the new yeah. more spiritual yeah, that's right so that's a good a big distinction change in, right? so there's a word that relates to how we understand how would we read that then what are those geopolitical there are all kinds of geopolitical promises and stipulations and commands and you go to the New Testament you don't quite see that well let's take the second one the second example again I don't want to move too far with this health and wealth I mean in the New Covenant David could say something like I never saw the righteous forsaken nor the seed begging bread there was a real health wealth gospel spirituality going on there you obey God you got wealthy it was a sign of obedience to be wealthy I think, you know, in the Old Testament, the covenant was with Israel, and so God was showing the nations who he was through his relationship and covenant with Israel. And so he demonstrated um, sort of who he was in his nature by that, that covenant with Israel, and Israel being faithful to what, what he described. Now the covenant is with the church. And so it's not a geopolitical nation-state enacting. And why not? I mean, isn't that just that sort of, uh, why isn't that just revisionist, uh, you know, why isn't that just Christians sort of going, oh man, we've got a problem here. Because the Old Testament so let's, always Let's spiritualize all this stuff so we can go into the New Covenant. So we go to the New Covenant where they just spiritualize everything. What are you saying? I said because the Old Testament always pointed to the nations. Israel being for the sake of the nations. God heart being the for the nations. Kingdom. So point two. Always I'm going to ask if, if the keyword is typology. Yes. So your wife that. said that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Janine has a yes. online. Yes. She said, "I had a Jewish friend once offhandedly say that Jesus didn't mean to start a new religion, but he did." I know, and now this is end quote. I know we consider the Old Testament to be part of our New Testament history, but is Judaism now a new religion? Because they don't believe Jesus' teachings. Do we worship the same God? Yeah, that's that's a, that's getting into the modern issue. The same question is going on right now in Wheaton, isn't it, with the, uh, with the uh, professor. Um, what do y'all think about that? I think now is a separate religion. It, 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 there, there's, so this is the yes and no question answer, I think. Um, Paul, and the, certainly to answer that question, and what I hope to show you today, is there is continuity. 
and that, that what we believe is a, as you said, the fulfillment motif. We begin to read the Old Testament in typology, and there's these geopolitical material realities like promised land that in the heaven that we discern was really a teaching tool, a tutor as Paul calls it in Romans 7. A tutor by which we could discern the eternal realities by virtue of these temporal typologies. Eternal reality by virtue of these temporal typologies. The promised land in Hebrews is what? They're looking for a home not of this world. They're looking for eternal life. And, um, and very clearly interprets that way. You could go on and on. And so back to this issue, whereas on the one hand, if you are, we believe that, that we are the Israel of God. We're going to talk about the church as the Israel of God. Paul, in chapter, you remember you're going to find that? You might know where that is. Passage you used to demonstrate. There are many, by the way. Romans 9 to 11. Romans, good. Romans, good. Not all Israel is Israel, Paul says. And he makes the case that the Christians are in continuity with the more, with the faithful or remnant Israel. So there was always an Israel within Israel. The remnant Israel was, was faithful to the covenantal, you know, context, particularly with respect to their being covered by the sacrificial atonement of sin uh, that was done typologically in the temple pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. And so uh, so this is important. So to answer, Janine, your question, um, yes and no. We would believe that we, the Christians, are the Israel or the Jews of God. We believe that the modern-day Jew, insofar as they are a tradition that rejected the fulfillment motif, are not then the um, completed, what's the word that that movement uses, a completed Jew? Uh, Messianic. Messi- well, the Messianic Jew, but there's a, there's a term that some Jews use called, I think it's completed. Yeah, completed. Yeah. Is that the movement, the completed yeah. Jew? Yeah, and so we would argue that there, there's an incompleteness, but that doesn't mean that they don't share our religion. They share it without the vantage point of a Christocentric fulfillment. So there's much we can learn from the Jewish people about our own religion. I, I, I read the Mishnah sometimes to discern the, the original intent in the Old Covenant of a scripture so that I can rightly translate it into the New Covenant. You know, whenever you read scripture, we're going to talk about this, but one of the things you're going to have to do is ask the question, what did this mean in its own covenantal context? And then from there, you ask, what now does this covenantal context, how does that relate to the subsequent covenantal context. And you do that throughout the Bible. So there's a kind of yes and no to that question. But yes, at the end of the day, Jesus rejected, those who rejected Christ, Jesus rejected as knowing the Father. Because if you had known the Father, he said, you know me. And that was a pretty radical, you aren't the true Israel of God if you've rejected the Messiah. And so we'd have to say that. But then, let's be careful, we can also say that they share our heritage. They share our lineage. We can say that with Muslims as well. And there's much that we can describe and discuss that we have in continuity. Well, we share their heritage, too. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. We're sharing a, a, a heritage, is what I mean. Okay, let's go to the next question. Uh, I don't want to go too far here. No, we're going to go on. I was going to say a side quick thing. Yeah, we just need to go on. Um, I'll say it later. Is the Old Covenant of works and the new covenant of grace such that in the former you are saved by works and the latter you're saved by grace. I.e., again, is this two religions fundamentally? Yep. So, uh, I think Westminster says that 
the covenant of works was prior to the fall, and the covenant of grace ties both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, I know Paul references, you know, the New Testament, or that it is a covenant of grace and that we're justified through grace, not through works, kind of re- referring to the um, Old Testament. So there seems to be a little bit okay, of a conflict so this there. this is where it's going to get a little tricky, okay? Do you hear anybody want to add to that? Go ahead. We talked about Abraham. Yeah. What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Abraham. All right. I said that uh, while the um, Old Testament may have had uh, some things to do with works, that Abraham was ultimately saved by grace. Good. Abraham was saved by grace. Was Moses saved by grace? Yes. Was David saved by grace? Yes. 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 All of them were saved by grace. Yes. But typologically, were they saved by grace? There's a typological salvation going on, remember? That kind of overlap the, the what we call the eternal spiritual. Typologically, were they judged, were they saved by grace or works? Typologically by works. Right? Did they ever really get settled in the promised land? No, they never did. No? And why didn't they? They were disobedient. Because they just never <laughs> found perfection under the law. They continue to disobey. Every one of the prophets say the reason you're in, in exile is you blew it again. You know, the reason you're in all these, and, and, and Judges is the perfect, uh, again, the perfect uh, commentary of the whole Old Testament is is that that what we call the S cycle. That constant, remember, anybody remember that cycle? There's sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. I love it, man. That pretty much describes the history of the Old Testament. And even the, yeah. Well, in the Old Testament, with guilt offerings, is that not a an act of repentance yes. that, when done correctly, is coming from a spirit of repentance that is the same spirit of repentance with which we approach Christ yes. after the fulfillment of Absolutely. the covenant? Absolutely, it is. Yes. So that's going on simultaneous to a typological works-based covenant wherein the people are continually sinning and breaking the law which incurs upon them the wrath typologically speaking even as they are being saved as through that by the, the temple sacrifice if by faith mm-hmm. so that's that's a, we're going to show that in an illustration in a minute let's go to the third one again I don't want to spend all day on this so we can get into the material are Christians today still expected to live according to laws yes yeah. So we, we, we do believe in laws. Yeah. Okay. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And okay. I, a new commandment yeah. I give you. Very good. Um, and those commandments, if you think about... what how did, It's interesting how Jesus framed that. Do you remember how he framed it? According to what reference point? Ten Commandments. He framed it within reference to the Ten Commandments. The whole law. Yeah. Two tablets. Summed up. Love the Lord. Love your neighbor. And if you read Leviticus, and if you read you know, Exodus, and you read Deuteronomy, all that stuff is basically the, the inside the title heads of those ten laws, those ten words, literally. They're ten words, ten laws, commands. And and all of that stuff is, okay, so what does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, hey, don't don't, don't take their ox. If you take their ox, it's what's going to, you know, the whole system around those commands. Do not steal, or do not this, do not that. So, um, so that's very important because we're not anti-law. We're not anti-commandment. And that's called antinomianism. But we are 
under the law condemned, and therefore we rebel against the law until we're set free from the law in order that we can then be restored to the law. But it's going to have to beg the question which we're going to have to ask, what laws? Should we stone uh, people to death today? Should we be meeting on, what, Saturday? I mean, I mean, come on, it, it has to be in your head that, keep, you know, you know, what's, what's the command, you know, keep that Sabbath holy? Mm-hmm. Well, we all know Sabbath seven, the word seven. We're screwing up. Is that right? Are we Sabbatarians today? Yes, no. Yes. Insofar as the law was what? Satisfied by Christ and vindicated by the resurrection so that the new creation is accomplished on the first day of the resurrection. And that was the argument of the New Testament church. But, but there's that continuity. We are Sabbatarians, but under the motif of the fulfillment in Christ. Or, same with circumcision to baptism. Same with Lord's Supper. I mean, uh, you know, the sacrifice, the, the Passover sacrifice, and now Lord's Supper. You see, those are the things we're going to be looking for. Okay, so we've got a good introduction. So no new religion, one religion, um, but fulfillment motif. So let's go to your handout. Actually, I'll tell you what to do. This might help. Why don't you go, just to have this in your head, it might be helpful. Take me to the uh, illustration, would you? Sure. There you go. This, was an illust- this is an illustration that I pulled, that I concocted, but it comes out of a lecture series that a guy named Meredith Klein did. And um, this, I'm going to try to explain this to you a little bit, but I want you to think about this idea of typology and, and then this idea of continuity, discontinuity. So what you see there is wherever the line on the top is, is uh, solid, Think of that as a typological uh, era. So, for instance, we had Eden. It was a geopolitical place. It was there's a there's some geography, and you had the Garden of Eden, which was the temple. Also, it was the temple of God in a geographical location, right? And then from Eden, they're sent out of that typology, and you get into the era, of course, of there is no geography. So the line continues. But then you get to the ark. You could call that a typology. The kingdom of God is now located in the ark. The ark becomes the kingdom of God visible, typological, geopolitical. And then, of course, you have the Abrahamic era, and, and in which now you, you have this non-typological era um, in the sense of the geopolitical. And, and that's why the Genesis and the Abrahamic era, to me, is most interesting to discuss. There are often times where... You see Abraham, and there's clearly this, this, this covenant, this promising a land, but they don't exist yet in the land that they belong to. And then you get into, of course, the Mosaic period. And then you have this, this Christ, the, the birth, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ that's going on there. And then you have the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Acts period. And, and the new, you know, the whole Pentecostal period going on there, the, the apostolic foundation. That's why it looks like bricks. Just like that. <laughs> and then we have a, the inauguration of the kingdom of God, and this now not yet reality that we're in now. 
and then you come, of course, to Christ's return, and we return to a fully consummated heaven, and notice the lines are now solid, because it's going to be an earthly, geographical heaven, and the resurrection of the body. If you look at all that, um, just just notice then sort of the continuity discontinuity issue. You have changing circumstances of human history from states of innocence to the fall to redemption partial and then entire. The non-changing, though, promise of redemption through the seed of Adam and the preservation of the covenant people, albeit through various administrations. If you walk through there, you see a different ethical principle. In the the innocence era, Eden, pre-fall, we are made the image of God, and we imitate God. Uh, in the image of God, apart from our sin, there wasn't a lot of codified laws. We don't have evidence that, in other words, you're going to see Westminster's wrestling with. They're, they're going to say, rightly, that the law was proclaimed and, and administered all the way back into the, the Eden to, God, to Adam. And yet we don't have a, a big corpus like we do by the time we get to Moses. It was an imitation, you know, they were made in the image of God to imitate God as God was present. To the degree that God is in the midst of us is the degree that the codes become less significant. How do we, how do we imitate God in the absence of God? Well, that's what his law does. This law tells us, it mediates to us his ethical image, if I can say it that way. Uh, but in the presence of God, who walked among them in the garden, there was much more of an, or an imitation principle. Let me work through these three, and I'll go back to them. Fallen state, you have the Imago Dei still, but there's less imitatio Dei, less of the imitation principle. The institution of sacrifice, the publication of laws, the promise of redemption, uh, the benefit of blessings of the immediate presence of God, the creature man must now labor to fulfill his creaturely mandate. In relation to God, sacrifice is uh, necessitated. An external code of divinely sanctioned behavior is revealed by laws. In the redeemed state, now we're moving back to imitatio. It's interesting, all throughout the New Testament, it's, it's imitate me, imitate Christ, imitate Christ, isn't it? There's a real imitation ethic. That's going through. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, Paul Peter said. And here you have this idea of continues, yet there is also a rival of the principle of imitatio, partially. External legislation continues as administered through the church upon apostolic foundations, yet we still await the glorified state. And so when you're considering considerations in determining whether or not covenant obliges us, how do we know then what laws in the old covenant oblige us and what laws don't? And, and things, that's the issue we're going to have to talk about when it comes to ethics, right? And it's, it is, is a given law reiterated in another covenant administration? Do you see it as a trajectory? Does it, is it a law that transcends all the covenants? That's one question you ask. Number two, is a given law reiterated in the new covenant? That's a, that's a no-brainer. So by the way, if, I, if you're a brand new Christian, and this guy says, just, what does it mean to be a Christian? What am I not going to do? Well, I'm going to tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go read the whole Bible and start with Genesis. By the time he gets the new covenant, this guy's going to be so confused, he ain't going to know what's going to happen to him. Now, I'm going to say, start, you know, I'd probably say a book like Ephesians. Ephesians, to me, is one of the best books to start with because it is, 
and is a is a non-situational letter. It is literally a letter written to new church plants saying, here's your roadmap. This is the Christian faith. I might say, start with John. Say, just, just go introduction to Jesus Christ 101, you know, or maybe one of the Gospels. And then say Ephesians. But why? Because I, I want to get, you know, there, he's going to have a deeper understanding we, we believe the Old Testament is essential. That is our scripture. So I'm not diminishing the scripture at all. But I think I would start over here. And then once they've got a little bit of a handle of, well, what is, what's the road that? What do I do? Where do I go? You know, all this stuff. Then I start getting the redemptive history that's going to fill in and give context all of that. It begins to make sense. And it will make sense at least because you have this reference point over here. Right. So you see that. Or third is a given law is a given law given prior to the fall. Will for creation, per se. Um, is a behavior recorded as descriptive of the redeemed state? Uh, you know, you see that in the Old Testament, that there be a day when, and there it goes, when fathers and mothers will return to their children, and the children will return to their mothers. And so it makes sense, then, of the uh, father, honor your father, you know, honor your father, whatever that is. Um, and then, then you have this sort of distinguishing features, which we just talked about. Uh, Sinai covenant made with one ethic and a geopolitical people. New covenant made with all peoples. It's not typological anymore. Remember, Israel was a type of the church. A church that, according to Abraham, and this is a big argument in Paul in Galatians. Paul's whole argument in Galatians, once, and even in, in Romans, in chapter 4 and 5, the argument in Galatians is, man, you can't, you can't um, skip over Abraham to interpret Moses. Moses doesn't annul Abraham and the promises that God gave to Abraham. You've got to read Moses with Abraham as a streaming or trajectory through it, lest you lose the, the, the covenant, what we call the covenant of grace, where, and, the, and the multinational vision of Israel that then becomes typologized in this very Jewish-centric, if you will, mosaic economy, even though Moses himself would be. Did it right? Don't 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 blame Moses on this. If you read Moses and Deuteronomy, and all he's he's envisioning another prophet. He's envisioning the nations coming to, coming into the church, etc. So you can rightly describe the old the old and New Testament as the old old covenant church and the new covenant church. They're both churches. Paul gives us permission to do that. There's some continuity there. You see, the Sinai covenant contains many typological ordinances prefiguring Christ. The new based solely upon Christ's work accomplished. You can think of, again, in the ecclesial sense, baptism, uh, you know, Lord's Supper, Sabbath. And how they, they translate that way. Um, ethics, uh, let's see here. We talked about Holy Land already. Sinai grants power of the sword to covenant people. New covenant grants only the power of the sword of the Spirit. And the Word. So very different, see. We're, we all have holy war. But for Christians, under the New Covenant, holy war is only once fought with the spiritual weaponry. Faith, hope, all that. And then you, you go into this final part, ethics of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus' humiliated state, together with his teaching, takes place within Sinai administration. Think about it. He was born under the law. We must interpret. This is crucial. When you think of Jesus Christ in his incarnational ministry, that is those, that 30 plus years of life on earth, remember 
He is there submitting to the law. What I'm trying to say, and I want to say this in a very qualified way, it is by far the most difficult and confusing interpretive endeavor to interpret the Gospels for ethical uh, reasons. Why do I say that? In other words, I'll put it another way. Sermon on the Mount might be the most misunderstood and misinterpreted place of all the Bible. Because we read it thinking that all of this is going on, and when he's saying all these things, that these are new covenant teachings. And they kind of they are, they're pointing to <coughs> But he's he's actually exasperating the heck out of the Jews, is what he's doing. You have heard it said, but I'm gonna tell you, and oh my gosh, the law is a lot worse than we thought. Or deeper. And he's holding them to the to the law so that they might cry out like the rich man young ruler and the disciples. Lord, what is, this is impossible. Really? Keeping the law means selling everything? Isn't that what the law said, by the way? It did say that. You know, doing to others you have to do to you, and you know, all that stuff. So, so then you have the golden rule and all this stuff, and so basically you come to this, the law was, it was a tutor to get us to exasperation. And lots of his ministry is exasperating those whose confidence was in their obedience to the law rather than in the grace of the gospel that was in the law but was best. And so it's a very important thing that you remember that his incarnational ministry is an act of humiliation. The ethics then of the kingdom are taught within the Sinai covenant. Christ's disciples follow entire body of legislation within the Mosaic economy, but Christ only prophetically speaks of the new covenant realities to come after his own death and resurrection. The new covenant does not start until after the resurrection, actually the ascension. Where he is now reigning in heaven, and there's a in his kingdom now is more fully come. And uh, finally, the apostles taught ethics of kingdom within the new covenant under the apostolic administration of the church. Apostles teachings of Christ in the new covenant. So there, there's a real big overlay, and so that way at least you have a you have a picture in your head. You can go to this next one. I won't go with the, the next ver. You know, there's another version of this little thing here an overview of redemptive history. You can study that later as well. It says basically the same thing that I just said, but it just gives you another picture to look at. Okay, do you have any kind of just, I know this is like blow your brain. I just kind of, you know, opened your mouth wide and got a hose into it. And I did that, I did it somewhat intentionally because we're now going to go back and slow down as we go through the confession. But I thought it would be helpful to have at least this frame in your head. But do you have anything that you want to say? you got to at least explain this before you go on. Anything you want to ask her? Say. How many of you are just thoroughly confused? It's all right. You're so. Come on. Y'all look at me like, you know, what's going on here? All right, let's go. If you don't have any questions or anything, you sure? All right, so turn your hand out. And go down to, uh, we'll skip over this, obviously, the first part. The shorter version? No, I'm, doing, I'm just on the one that's on the top. The one. What do you mean, sir? That's the one. Go, on, go, on, go up to uh, where we start, Westminster 19 introduction. Yeah, there you go. That's where you are if you want to pull it up on your own screen. Everybody there? Keep going down. Keep going down, 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 down. There you go. Yeah, oh, sorry. There you go. Um, so let's talk about this word covenant. I think uh, you said it well over there. Um, 
But, but the way that our confession, again, I'm just giving you a little bit of a confession. Now I'm going to ask, we're back to our confessional theology. I was trying to introduce some things. But let's talk about what our, how does the Westminster think about covenant, which is our consensus. So let's look at how the church historically defines some things. First of all, we're not going to go read all this. In Westminster Confession, chapter 7, section 1, it describes it as a condescension. Well, think about what that means. That sounds like a bad word, doesn't it? It was condescending with God. And what would that mean to you in modern vernacular? Condescending. Put down. Put down. Do what? Put down. Put down. Anybody else? He's very condescending. It's it's in the, the treatment of the person you're speaking of, the way they're treating another, right? As a as they put down. As a lesser person, as somehow weaker or not as intelligent or a condescension is that you're treating someone, well, again, I'll just use the word as a lesser, weaker person. And the reason that's so offensive is because one human con- condescending to another person is a violation of, of, of our equality. You and I are deeply offended by that. If you, if you treat me condescendingly, you know, then there's something deeply, fundamentally flawed about that, because I know in my heart of hearts that you and I before God are equals. I don't care what my education is, I don't care what my class is, my race is. If you think about all this reconciliation we're talking about, it all comes down to one group condescending another group. Acting condescendingly to another group. That's really what it comes down to. So when you hear this word, it can be very offensive. But if you stop and think for a minute, we're dealing with God here, a creator, and it becomes just the opposite effect if you understand this word in that context. Because now this is a God who is who, who cares enough to come into our life and level and to take what is not capable of being packaged and putting it in a small enough package that we might discern. And when you think of a covenant, imagine taking the glorious mind and and, and, and values of God and communicating that to us. It is in, an act of, of incarnation. Taking his glory and making it incarnate. And so it's an amazing, gracious condescension that we think of the covenant because the covenant allowed us to be, think about what that covenant does. It allows us, God, to be approachable now. We are actually able to approach God through this covenant. It's, it's, a, it's a vehicle through which I can now relate to God. And God can communicate to me in language that I can understand. But it is an act of incredible, gracious condescension. So that's a good word in this context. And notice the form. I won't, what they did, I won't go into this. You can learn it later because we'll do it in our hermeneutics class. But So what he did and where this covenant comes from is the mo- it would be like taking today a... Uh, I don't know, uh, a rental agreement, the way that it's phrased, or a mortgage statement, and say, I tell you what, these people live their whole life around these, these legal documents, mortgages and rentals and all that. So I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it in a form that they're already very familiar with. And this is the form that was used in all nation state sorts of transactions in that day. 
nations would enter into covenants with other nations. And so he takes that form that is familiar to them in the day, and he speaks through that form. And the form had these, these what is it, 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. These six, there were six parts to, to an ancient Near Eastern treaty or covenant. And you can really, you know, all of the, of the covenants are, are put in this language. The Deuteronomy is one full package. You have Exodus and Leviticus that is one. That's one version of the covenant, and it follows these six perfectly. Well, actually, Genesis through Exodus is what I meant to say. Genesis through Exodus follows these perfectly. Genesis 1 is the, is, is the preamble. You know, in the beginning there was God. Let me tell you about this glorious God. The first creation says nothing about creation. It says everything about God vis-a-vis creation. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. This is why you want to serve me. Because, man, you don't want to serve all these other kings. These other kings, like birds over the sky and animals over there, those are small. I'm the king of all these kings. The seventh-day king. has nothing to do with creation. It has to do with who God is. Part two, the historical prologue. Let me tell you how I have, what I have accomplished. Let me tell you the great feats that would make you believe and trust and give your life to me and enter contract with me. And that begins, of course, all the way there in chapter two, verse four, and it goes all the way through Genesis into uh, Exodus and, and, and the Exodus. And then you off you go. You've got the then you got the stipulation. So I put all the. You see the language there. You got the. You go look at this stuff. You go, wow, there it is, right there. Following this little pattern. And Deuteronomy as well. So that's the first thing you need to know. Now we get to this issue of the, of the Westminster, and they distinguish between two covenants. Now this, this has been a highly debated way to talk about it. Now it's a good way to say it because we have it in the Old Testament. And New Testament. New, old covenant, new covenant. So the language is not a problem. It's how do you understand the two. But you have a covenant of works, and it's called pre-redemptive. And then you got the covenant of grace, which, of course, we're talking about redemptive. Now, here's the thing. I have no problem with the word old covenant, new covenant, because it's in the Bible. But I think a lot of people misunderstand what's saying there. You think the Bible is saying, okay, um, uh, probation, you know, old covenant, failed. So God goes back to the drawing board and says... All right, we got to come up with a new idea here, Trinity. <laughs> Spirit, talk to me, man. We, we, we got these people ain't working on this covenant very well. And like, oh, I got an idea. Hey, you, my son, the second person, would you be willing to do this? And let's do this new covenant. Is that what happened? You know, I didn't. No, it's not that God declared His own covenant a failure. It was incomplete, as revealed and intended to be revealed. So there's part one, you could call, of the covenant. Part two would be a way to say it. Where, or Bernard Klein describes it, it's maybe better, there's the, there's the covenant of works, and added to it is the covenant, is, is the promise of grace. <coughs> works. So this is really important, because as you're going to see later, you're going to see a priority of works. We are saved by works of the law. In the New Testament. But the sacrificial substitutionary atonement is such that to the, the covenant of works is added the grace principle 
given to Adam when the sacrifice was made and he was clothed, throughout the sacrificial system revealed, getting you to the sacrifice of Christ. So to the works, so you still have stipulations. We're not anti-law. But we certainly are exasperated under the law and brought to our knees in need of grace. But grace that restores us to our obedience and reliance upon God, which is exactly where we're supposed to be in the, in the, in the garden in the first place. So it's not like, like when, we go to, when we get into heaven, we will actually be back to Eden, but now Eden perfected, not Eden innocence. There's a difference. What's the difference between innocence and perfection? Well, innocence isn't knowing the whole story. <laughs> yeah. What? Is that what you just said? When you're innocent, you haven't done anything yet. You haven't done anything. Perfection. You've done, done everything. It's accomplished. Right. And so Eden was a place of innocence. They, were, they had not yet sinned. But oh, the whole opportunity was right there. And you're just waiting for free will. To, 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 to get engaged in, in self-exaltation. Now you take us all the way through this process, the gospel restores us. Think about if God had made it, if there had been any way for us to have come to, to, to Eden, the new Eden, the second Eden, if you will, what we read about in Revelation 7, by virtue of the works of the law, we would still be self-reliant, ironically. We would still not be at God's mercy. So the law revealed the holiness of God and directed us to the other to the full character of God in his mercy and grace, wherein by the time we get back to Eden 2, we are now Imago Dei perfected. Isn't that cool? If we didn't have the old, we wouldn't understand our need for the new. Exactly. The law. The law. Um, so that's very important, and our confession is brilliant. I mean, really, this is very re unique. Um, you go find me Heidelberg. Go look at all the other creeds. There's very little covenantal. This is where Westminster really is a, a very unique covenant and confession because they specifically address how do we relate the covenants, knowing that that was that was going to impact our whole view of the Bible, salvation, etc. So let me let me then go back to the. Now we're going to go into the, the interpretive principles of of the, of the uh, Westminster. And this is really important as well. And this is a wonderful summary by T. David Gordon, one of my professors and now friend. Um, when you have you ever written, so we're talking about now the Decalogue. Let's go to the Ten Commandments. It's a nice way of sort of summarizing the law. Okay? And this is the, the principles that our confession, our consensus has, as to how we're to understand the Ten Commandments. And I think there's plenty of scripture that supports it, but we just obviously can't go through that tonight. But I think this is very important, at least for a starting point for you. So number one, the Decalogue is a timeless expression of God's moral will. Westminster 19.1. We'll read all this in a minute. Um, this is huge. They affirmed a relationship between the commands given to Adam and the commands given at Sinai. Some such relationship undoubtedly exists, especially reward for obedience, the curse for disobedience, um, etc., etc., etc. Number two, when they read the law, they understood, they interpreted it in light of how the law was then utilized in other scriptures. So this is the old principle that you see in our own confession: we interpret scripture with scripture. 
Um, so this is implicit in the proof text. If you, if you, have anybody ever tried to look at the proof text uh, of, of that, are, that they utilize? If you have the version of the confession that has the scripture references, yeah, and you look at the proof text and you go, yep. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> What's going on there? Well, you know, the, the longer I study scripture, the more I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed at how they were interpreting scripture with scripture and you would use things. So, for instance. Um, why is it that our confession quotes the uh, what's the commandment honor thy father and mother? You know, I'm not a sensual guy. What is that one? Six. Five? You may have a six. What six? Yeah. Six. First five are going to have to do with them. All right. So six. So so honor thy father and mother. And I'm, I'm going. Oh, I know what that means. When I'm a kid, I need to obey my parents. Go read the confession. Go read larger catechism that really goes into it. What are the duties re- required? What are the what are the sins uh, that, that 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 they go through the duties and the sins that are relating to that commandment? And now it's going to talk about your relationship to all superiors and the superior's relationship to all inferiors. It's going to talk about your relationship to the government, to the church, to the church government and the civil authorities. And you know, parents, what? Now, is that legitimate? Where is the government, the civil authority in, in Eden? Adam. The father, the mother. Where is the church? Adam. The, and the mother. You take through the scripture. You see it being utilized that way. That there is this 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 um, Development of the fam- the household becomes the seed of all institutions. The family is the germ seed that breeds the church, that breeds the state. They all come out of the family from Genesis. And that's very clear. Adam becomes the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Right? And off we go. So all of a sudden you begin to realize that what was happening here is, is, is a law that was speaking to the issue of, of how authority, those who are put by God in authority are to treat inferiors, those under them, and how those are, and I say inferior not in an ontological sense, but in a relationship to the order of things, and how those under authority are to treat those in authority. And Paul deals with the very same thing. It's interesting in Ephesians how he takes that same paradigm. He goes from households to church to states, right there in the same language, and quotes the the Ten Commandments about that. Sorry, it was five. (laughs) Five, thank you. So, uh, so that's number two. That, that's really important. Laws which are negative. So here's the other principle. And why would they do this, by the way? Laws that are negative, forbidding something, are implicitly positive as well, requiring the contrary, or vice versa. Notice first, that is, where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. How did they have a right to do that? Anybody guess? Interpret scripture through the covenants? Come on, guys. Where do you see that happen? Well, you could take Jesus yeah. when he was asked what was the most, what the most important commandment. And he took a whole bunch of negatives right. and put them into the positive. Yeah, you've heard it said, and then he would go in and say, man, it's not just about not, it's not just about uh, what you give to your parents, Corbin, or whatever. It's, it's that you are to do the positive. In other words, if you see Paul, for instance, he's going to say, thou shalt not steal. And then if you go to Ephesians and look at how he interprets that, 
He says, therefore, let everybody work with their own hands so that they can give to those who have need. There it is. What's the point of stealing? The point is that you're not to take from people, but the implicit opposite is that you're to give. You're to care for people. So go to work, work with your own hands so that you can take care of people who need it. It's an amazing statement, and it happens all through the Scripture. So, so there's a lot. Before you go and you read these proof texts, oh, I don't know why You better be careful because they were reading the Bible holistically. They were reading it as a covenantal document over the periods. And they were following the covenantal trajectories through the whole of Scripture and, and how something in the germ form was being developed over the ages in Scripture to become a fuller and fuller understanding of God's mind and holiness. You know, as you start in Genesis, you get a little bitty, tiny little sliver of foreshadowing of Jesus. By the time you get to Revelation, man, you got King Jesus. That happens over a period of thousands of years. And it's codified in Scripture. Well, same thing with the law. You have this law, thou shalt not kill. And all of a sudden, by the end of it, you're saying, man, if you even hate, and if you don't love, you've actually violated the law of thou shalt not kill. And that's what Jesus said to the, uh, the yeah, rich young Mueller. The rich young Mueller's taking it Literally, in a small way, he says, well, I've kept the law, Lord. Really? Have you sold everything you own and given it to the poor? Thou shalt not steal. You have two coats. They have none. You're stealing from them. By not loving them with one of your coats. And that's what exasperates us to the cross right there. You're, oh, my God. I thought, I thought this was going to be simple. You know, ten little, little words. Keep those little ten little words, and I'll be all right. I never shot anybody. You shot anybody? No. All right, I'm cool. And then Jesus comes in and says, man, you have no clue. And that gets us to the next point. Not only are laws negatively forbidden, etc., 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 attitudes, speech, or overt behavior which encourage a particular sin are also sin. Now, do you see that? I tell you, if you even hate a brother, you kill him. In other words, the attitude of the heart is just as important as the behavior. James. James does this a lot. Where he's, he's getting us for, you know, this idea. And remember, he gives you the whole taxonomy of sin. He says, where does sin begin? It sins with desire. The desire for what you don't have is the beginning of the sin of, of let's say, the astral steel. So, so don't, don't get too uppity when you're reading these proof texts. They were very, very thorough in understanding. By the way, the other way you get this is you have the Ten Commandments, and then if you go read all of those hundreds and thousands of laws under the Ten Commandments, they're doing all of this. They're, okay, thou shalt not steal, you know, chapter 2. Okay, let me show you what stealing is and isn't in your heart. And, and it's all there in, in, the, in the Leviticus verses and elsewhere. Finally, the law is spiritual, directing us into the entire person, not merely an overt behavior. Uh, we talked about that a little bit, the condition of our heart. And then the law is perfect. And what they mean in the old English sense of unified or complete, this is really huge, you see. But what do you think that means? So that the, the failure in one area contributes to failure to another. That's the idea of the holistic. That was James's point. If you, if you, if you fail one part of the contract, you, you, you've annulled the contract. That's not saying that, that, that the sin of, of pornography, let's say, is at the same level as the sin of adultery. It's saying that they're related. 
It's saying that the two are equally violations of the law, which warrants, which 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 directs us to the bigger sin of rejecting God, which warrants eternal hell. So my pornography is as much a condemnation of my original sin of rejecting God as my committing adultery is a is a expression of my rejecting God, and the original sin condemns me to hell. Have you, have you thought about that? Yeah. But that's how I would say it. I don't hear people saying it very clearly sometimes. In other words, you've always got to trace a sin to the original sin. That's what I'm trying. Whenever you're talking to somebody and they say, that seems a little bit overplayed. I mean, so, so God sends someone to hell because they lusted for a Mercedes Benz? Yeah, I'll scratch that one out. You see what I'm saying? And, and what we're going to have to say is that you're right. That would seem capricious. That would seem very arbitrary. I mean, that, that would send you to hell. But what's underneath the, 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 the lust of the Mercedes? Huh? Just self, what I want. Well, okay, but what's, what's the original sin that's underneath? Sin number ten, covetousness. Okay, covetousness. And what is covetousness ultimately directing us to? What's the real God. sin here? Rejecting God. It's rejecting. You're basically saying God is not enough for me. I need to create another God. You're rejecting the sufficiency of God. That's exactly what Adam did. That's the original sin. So I would be careful. This is just a little comment. When you're dealing with ethical issues, there's so much you can learn from what we're covering right here, right? What we're just doing is huge. You really ought to meditate on this as you talk to your colleagues and friends and you get into these ethical decisions and they're, they're thinking we're so uptight about everything. But underneath all of this is the very heart and soul of what's wrong with our world, that we've rejected the authority and the, and the sufficiency of God. And these things are just the, they're the tip of the iceberg, and underneath is the original sin. And that really helps in your ethical conversations with people. To say, well, let's just assume there is a God for a minute. And that he's the source of life. To reject that life, giving source, is to condemn yourself to godlessness, which is lifelessness, which is hell. And that sounds very different if we work it out. But see, Christians for too long have not had to deal with, with non-Christendom, and I, I'm afraid that we've lost that ability to, to speak into our world in a way that you can see happening in the first century when the whole world was a Christian. So this is really good stuff. I hope you're, you're appreciating just how profound our church over thousands of years is to helping you think about ethics and how you articulate it. Finally, there are some parts of the Old Testament law that are either particularly or exclusively suited to, to the covenant administration at Sinai. Notice these passages. I won't read them. 19, 3, 4, 21. All of these make the point that there are some aspects of the Mosaic covenant that are not translatable into the New. And now we're getting back to that issue of then what distinguishes what. You'll remember that the Sinai devises these three types of laws, trying to understand this issue of continuity and discontinuity. And they divided all the laws into the moral, ceremonial, and... and uh, um, moral, ceremonial, and legislative, what is that? Judicial. Or what? Judicial. Judicial. Or, or what? Geopolitical. Civil. Civil, thank you. Civil is what I'm looking for. So you see, see, those are the ways that they, and so they're saying, hold it now, because we're, and notice their logic, because we're no longer geopolitical, 
that laws that are governing the geopolitical kingdom of God are no longer in effect. Okay? Because we are no longer under the temple, the laws that were governing the temple are no longer in effect. But the moral were those aspects of the law that, trend, that goes through all the coming administrations that are still in effect. And even then, those parts of the moral law that were attached to civil, so when you committed adultery, you were stoned, well, the curse is, is then not uh, held to today because that was a civil uh, curse against that sin. So, so this is the, it's, it's really hard to imagine how profound our confession is here. This is, this is one of the things that scholars look at the Westminster Assembly and go, wow, they were way ahead of their age on this one. It wasn't until... A hundred years later that people were starting to do what we call biblical theology and, and asking this sort of thing, the way that they're doing this here. Not just, I mean, I don't mean that. I mean, there's certainly people before doing it, but, but this is really pretty profound. Is they're, they're grappling, and it's fairly ironic. I think we've made some progress even since then in how we understand these things, but, but just appreciate what they're doing for you. They're trying to help you understand how to read the Old Testament and why, therefore, we're not, say, uh, a theonomist where we're not going in saying we should have a Christian nation. Why would we say that? Why in the Civil War did Presbyterians, among others, not just Presbyterians, uh, I won't say March, but why did they, they, why were they so against things like fast days and prayer days? That sounds odd to you, doesn't it? Why would they be upset when President Lincoln calls a fast? And tells the whole nation to fast. He's not the head of the church. He's not the head of the church. They're not looking. They have some good theology here. What is what is Caesar doing telling me what to do when it comes to my faith? Both the South and the North had bills that went to their assemblies to, to adopt a Christian creed. And pastors everywhere stood up against it. I said, there's no... And, and they and, and, and said that, that, you know, that, that you're violating my conscience. The state is not the governor of my soul. And it's not going to tell me what to believe. This is a huge issue today. It's a huge issue. Um, do you want schools? I know that this is really... But do you want schools telling your kids how to pray? Public schools? But yet... Do we want the, the children to be able to pray in school yeah. themselves? Let's see, we're gonna we're gonna have to parse this thing. You know, I can. My wife's a teacher, and we get. She, you know, it's kind of hard, right? Lisa, sometimes you just dying to tell these kids some stuff, and it's there's a. I think there's still a way to do it if it's voluntary and not in a formal context. But but for her to stand up there and say, I'm gonna, you know, in any way other than a historical review, I'm gonna teach you the Christian faith as a moral heart you know, binding sort of an event, well, ironically, as a Christian, I'm going to say, I don't think that's right. Not if it's a public school. Now, if, if there's another debate about whether we should have public schools. <laughs> okay, that's another debate. Whether it shouldn't all be parent. Yeah. So there, there's all kinds of debates here, but be careful. It might not be as simple as you think. And the, and the confession is already beginning to help us think like this. Well, with civil laws, are we wanting, are, are, is it necessarily a good argument that we want our government to get its laws from the Old Testament, civil laws, 
Now you you could you could say, but that's but, but what I would say is be careful, because it was a theocracy, a theocracy, and and do you really want a theocracy? You know, even Geneva, and I don't know how many of you know Calvin and, and his work, but a lot of people will look into Geneva and remember there was there there was no such thing as a nation that didn't have a deity. So if you converted, the king converted, like say Augustine, you just you turned your state over to your deity. Everybody had deities. Calvin had a deity. It was Christian. It was a Christian. You know. But even even Calvin made a distinction between the elders of the church and their government and the uh, rulers of, of Geneva. So this is pretty big stuff, and I hope you're beginning to see that there's some real groundbreaking work going on here in our confession, and it's really helpful to us if we can learn. To think in some categories. Any any questions so far? I'm going to go on down now to the actual confession. Look at for the last 20 minutes or so. Any questions, thoughts, comments? Y'all tracking with me? You sure? When we get to the final Q and A time, Lane Hancock has a question about covenant theology. Okay, make sure he get, gets back to me. So let's look at 19, 1 through 5. Y'all see it there? Let's just read it. Could y'all help me read? So let's take turns reading. Number one. Go. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. Okay, there we are, and where are we now? You got that map in your head? It's, it's unbelievable. There it is. It starts with Adam and Eve. And what happened there? Part one. Part two? So one? This law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tablets. The first four commandments containing our duties towards God, and the other six, our duty to a man. Okay, remember what we said? How the law is now becoming more, it's, it's become, now that we've been sent out from the imitatio of God context, it's becoming now codified. But it's the same. Notice the continuity there, but there's some discontinuity. It's in a different form, but it's the same God in the same holiness standard that would have been there by imitation. Okay, number three. Beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse, ins diverse instructions. There's no E in text. Holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Okay, you got you got a, some very important words here. Did you notice them? You got this idea of the moral law, which was described in number two. Okay, it's this universal rule of righteousness. You've now got the church being called Israel, being called the church. Did you notice that? The church under age is Israel. That's profound, very profound. That, that is a really huge, huge uh, sort of uh, 
hermeneutical moment there. Of course, I think we can easily quantify it with Romans 9 and elsewhere. And then you, he used this word ceremonial, referring to the, the laws that governed the, the temple. And they were typical. There's your typology word. They're typical, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties. Notice right there, it was hard to, just, I mean, it was moral to keep the Sabbath holy, and yet there was an aspect of the Sabbath which was ceremonial. So you're really doing some parsing here. Notice, notice the language here. I would say if you had these laws, I'd put them like three rings overlapping in certain areas. Because it was, you know, I mean, how do you how do you distinguish the civil law from the moral law? If the moral law is thou shalt not commit adultery, and then the civil code, the curse of that was to stone her to death, or him to death, or something like that. Yeah. You see, they're, they're intertwined, and yet the covenant, yet the confession is rightly understanding that there's an aspect that is eternal, and there's an aspect that's not, you know, con- continuous. Insofar as the church and the state divide. You see, outside of the typological, you know, geopolitical context of that, where those lines are both, you know, in that graph I showed you where they're both solid. Now, number four. <clears throat> to them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry ju- judicial laws which expire together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. Okay, there again, civil, distinct from spiritual. And then five. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen well, this, this obligation. This is so huge. What do you think is happening there? Notice, it seems to be aware of something. What do you think this statement is aware of? Are you comfortable with Martin Luther's phrase, law and gospel, describing the Old and New Testament? Now, would this make you comfortable with that? See there? Yeah, you have something? No. 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 Because here it's saying there is no conflict between law and gospel. Now, Paul seems to say otherwise. You need to understand what Paul is saying. Uh, Samuel Bolton, I don't know if I put this quote in here, made a really helpful point to the confession, uh, to the assembly, uh, when he gave them his... And and one of the things he said is, Paul uses law as a covenant term. And then sometimes law is used... and, And Paul pretty much exclusively uses law as a covenant term. So now he's talking about the holistic covenantal relation to God and that we are no longer now justified by works of the law like we would have been under the typological system of Israel. You see? But then here, there's also another aspect, but, but, but the law, but, but Paul will later say in Romans that, hey, don't, don't get mad at the law here. The law was beautiful and perfect. It was, it was our relationship to the law insofar as the relationship was one of fear, the law was like an enemy of a sinner. If you're a sinner, the law condemns you. Now, what if the law 
the first use of the law reveals what God what God's will is of righteousness. The second use of the law is to reveal how sinful I am, which puts me on my knees. And if I am therefore justified by grace through faith, it directs me then, it, it, or the first law, you could say, tells me the moral righteousness of God and therefore condemns me of my unrighteousness. The second use of the law directs me to Christ who was righteous according to the law. And if I believe in Christ, what happens to me? The word there is used. Notice justified persons. It says the moral law that bind forever all as well justified persons as others. Being justified, as in saved by grace or faith, doesn't then say, I don't need the law anymore. What it says is, I have a new relationship to the law. No longer a relationship, according to Paul, that is is afraid of it because of his condemnation of me as a sinner, but being set free from the fear of condemnation, I'm restored to where I should be with the laws. The psalmist would say prophetically, oh, how I love thy law. Why? Because remember, what are these laws? Revelation of God. They're the holiness, righteousness of God. And what is the law, the, the summary of, of, the, of the law according to Christ? Love. We love you, God. And it's also the summary of God's law on his part. It's his love for us. It's so important when you're talking to somebody who's struggling with something to say, look, you've got to believe that the law is love. So if God says, don't do this and do this, or whatever, it's God loving you. There is a vision of flourishing in God's mind for you. And this flourishing is going to be in obedience to the law. You think that breaking the law makes you liberated? Think again. It puts you under the curse. And it brings curse upon yourself. God is trying to set you free from that which will destroy you. It's love. But now, I couldn't see that except for the gospel. Before the gospel, I was, I was under the condemnation of the law. Post-gospel now, I'm restored to the law. So one way to put it, and I think Keller phrased this, is before I was a Christian, I was law-reliant, which means I was trying to justify myself, and I do it in millions of social ways as well as spiritual ways, always defending myself to you, always bragging to you, always trying to do things that makes you where I feel justified around you and and God, people and God. Now, the gospel sets me free from the fear of your condemnation and God's. You know? And now, I'm no longer law-relying, as in I'm relying on my obedience to the law to make me justified. So now I'm law... What? Come up with the word. Law-loving? I would say fulfilled. Law, law <laughs> desiring? Yeah. I mean, the idea is that we, that we love the law again. So, Preston, I, I guess what I don't understand, yeah. you, you said that uh, Paul says that under the covenant of the law, that people are justified through the perfect action of the law. But we just said that even in the Old Testament, they were only justified through faith and yeah. through through yeah. a law of, or through a covenant of grace. So, Well, eternally they are. Typologically they weren't. I thought even typological. I mean, I thought even when we went through it, Abraham, Moses, all of them were still. They were. They're the the, the rip. So so so. Remember the typological, the geopolitical aspect is such that that land 
and health and wealth and prosperity and all that was contingent upon obedience. And did they ever attain to that land and health and wealth and prosperity? No. no. You see? So in that sense, and, and remember, I, I, you're going to get into this later, but uh, and we're not going to probably get to it, so read the rest of it. You really need to read the rest of it. But one of the keys is you can discern the difference between there is a kind of covenant, and whoever takes the oath is the one responsible for it. That's why the Abrahamic covenant, or at least one of the Abrahamic covenants, is not Abraham taking the oath, but God taking the oath, right? And insofar as that oath is satisfied through the temple sacrifices as a typological way of showing it, they are all saved eternally, just like we are. They're Christians. But they never got saved typologically. They were exasperated from the very end. And, and that exasperation was a tutor to direct them to the deeper problem of if I want the real promised land, if I want the real restoration with God, if I don't want to be excommunicated just geographically from Jerusalem, but I don't want to be excommunicated from the very presence of God. Think about what, you know, we, we were talking, we've been talking about Esther and these two different groups of Jews, right? One, the exile, still in exile. For the Jew to be exiled from Jerusalem was to be exiled from what? The temple. And the temple is the presence of God. So it says in Genesis that they're Ex excommunicated, literally is the, is the translation there, from the very presence of God, from the face of God. They were excommunicated. So, so for the Jew, that physical excommunication was meant to help them as a tutor to say, whoa, my sin, my, my self-righteousness can't save me. Not for the promised land, much less for the eternal land and the eternal presence of God. Not the mediated presence of God in the temple, but the real immediate presence of God that we see in Revelations and, and the restored Eden. So there's a, those two trajectories going. You've got to keep those straight. So you could say that Israel was never saved by works of the law. There's a remnant Israel that understood and believed in the promises that were attached to the law that reveals you to Christ that are saved by grace through faith alone. And the foreshadowing you know, uh, aspects of, of the law that points you to Christ. So, uh, but that was their justification, not the perfect working out of. That's right. The law. Oh, they're justified by grace through faith, but typologically, they were justified by works of the law, which they never got. So there's two things going simultaneously in a sense, and that's why that if you look at that that little picture I gave you earlier, that illustration, it's all right there. You see, there's this there's this one kind of Justification that, that's going through the promise, and then there's another kind of justification that's going typologically through keeping the law externally. The remnant are those faithful who believe in the promise of God, says Paul. Not all Israel is Israel. Okay, good questions. Anybody else? Um, We've run out of time, so yeah, let's get his question. Yeah, so Lane has a question. So we have the categories of Old Covenant and New Covenant, uh, Old and New Testaments, but we also have categories of Covenant of Works and Covenant of Grace, which are <coughs> from Old Covenant and New Covenant, don't strictly correspond to that. And so, uh, because the Covenant of Works was in Eden, and then the Covenant of Grace... Well, the Covenant of Works was also in, in Moses. Okay. So this is related to his question. He asks... Uh, when considering the covenant of grace, why not formulate it as promised in Genesis 3.15, but not present until Christ's coming in the New Testament? 
this would mean that all the Old Testament saints were saved, are saved into the new covenant. And, and his concern is this. He's wondering, are we adding a new category and putting that on top, this covenant of grace, instead of purely thinking... I, I think he just said exactly what I said about 45 minutes ago. I'm not sure of that. Oh. I don't know if he was there then. But let me, let me point him... Uh, Lane, I'm pointing you. He, he hears me, right? Yes. Um, hey, Lane. <laughs> Uh, let me go down here. I think I put it in there. Go to page. Uh, go to page. I hope I have pages in here. Oh no, I don't. Okay. Go get, scroll down, and there's going to be number seven summary. How to distinguish the two covenants? Everybody do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You find that? How to distinguish two covenants? Summary number seven. Tell me when y'all are there. Everybody there? So I'd like to read that. Um, this is, a, I think, a good uh, answer to his question. Quote, the difference between the pre-redemptive and redemptive covenant is not then that the latter substitutes promise for law, or gospel for law. The difference is rather that redemptive covenant adds promise to law. Redemptive covenant is simultaneously a covenant, a promise administration of guaranteed blessings and a law administration of, the, of blessings dependent on obedience with the latter foundational. Now, the weakness of the traditional designation, covenant of works, for the pre-redemptive covenant is that it fails to take into account of the continuity of the law principle in redemptive revelation, therefore is not a sufficiently distinctive term. The principles of works continues into the redemptive covenant administration, not only in the sense already stressed that the blessings of redemption are secured for the works of a federal head who must satisfy the law's demands, but in the sense, too, that none of the many represented by Christ attains to the promised consummation of the covenant's beatitude, except he attains to that holiness without which man does not see God, that is restored to the face of God. Coherence can be achieved in covenant theology only by the subordination of grace to law. Now what is he saying? What he's saying is that we begin in a law, in a covenant relation with God, that's based on stipulations and curses and blessings that are related to our obedience of those stipulations, right? We fail that. To that covenant, not he doesn't abolish the law, but to that covenant he adds the promise of grace. That there will be some there will be a yet another covenant head, and this is where we've got to get into federal headship stuff, which we've already done. There'll be another covenant head acting on behalf of all the people who will keep the law, who will, who will take the oath of law obedience and will satisfy the law on behalf of the people so that for those who put their faith in that covenant head, that second Adam, they will be saved by the law, kept, by virtue of the vicarious law-keeping of the second covenant head. Now, I said a mouthful there, I know. But bottom line is, I think, Lane, you're right, and you're, tr- you're wrestling with this issue, that's really good, because what we're really saying is Old Covenant and New Covenant is really Old Covenant, if you mean by that, Covenant of Works, which then adds to it the Covenant of Grace, but it doesn't, un- so don't think of Old and then Dead, and now you got a new one. Think of Old and then added to it. The new print, the, the principle of promise, which by the way started in Genesis three, <laughs> and it goes right through. You see it expressed particularly in the Abrahamic. The Abrahamic covenant continues through Moses, 
But added to to that, you have the typological error where Moses executes a law that's temporal, that's directing people to the the futility of self-reliance, self-righteousness. And it's a brilliant. And it becomes a tutor. And Paul says, thank God I'm set free from this part, this aspect that that temporal reminded me of, that I am relying on the law and my keeping it in order to be justified with God, I'm, I'm condemned. And I can tell you that because typologically, the people never sat, settled and were happy and flourished in the promised land. It was like a, it was like a uh, what do you call that in, in teaching? It's like a picture, a pictorial sort of thing. And so, uh, so that's very important. So, so what we don't want to do, what this does is it sets up the issue, though, that we're not antinomian. We, we believe we love the law. But we also recognize that we could never love the law except that we love it through the gospel. And yet the law all the more now recognizes what Christ accomplished for us. Okay? So that was, uh, any other questions before we close off? We're, we're, I hope that you'll take the time to read the rest of it. We did cover quite a lot tonight, and I appreciate your uh, patience with all that. Read through it. Um, by the way, Galatians is one of the, was a pretty difficult book to interpret it, but this stuff that we're talking about is just saturating Galatians. Okay, any other questions? Here's a question. Okay. Did the Old Testament saints have the indwelling spirit? If so, how do we make sense of John's emphasis of the spirit as someone to be sent once Christ leaves? Yeah. Once he leaves. Once he said. Once yeah. Christ ascends. Um, so, so that is a really hard question, but but there's no doubt that there's something that there's something that happened uh, distinctively. I mean, Jesus spoke of the coming of the Spirit so much so that to reject the coming of the Spirit is the impardonable sin. And so, what is he saying there? To reject the Spirit is to reject the Spirit that awakens us to see the Messiah. So it's very important to understand that when, when the New Testament is talking about being spirit-filled, it's talking about being given the ability to discern the messianic nature of Christ. It's really that closely identified. Because if you look at John, the, the spirit is the coming of Christ and the mystical union of Christ with the spirit. It really is. This other comforter is likened unto Christ. I will come to you, and then I will come to you is... I will come in the Holy Spirit. So you could say, like Richard Gaffin does in his brilliant book um, on this topic, uh, uh, Perspectives on Pentecost. It's probably one of the most brilliant books you can read on the Holy Spirit and the nature and the understanding of Pentecost. And as he argues that, you know, you have there in the Pentecost the preaching of Christ. People say to them, you know, they have all this stuff that's going on in the Holy Spirit, right? And so they come in and say, man, what is happening here? And what does Peter do? Does he preach a sermon on the Holy Spirit? No. He preaches Christ. What's happening here is the coming of Christ. By, in, went through by the Spirit. Just as Christ, just as, as, as Luke foreshadowed at the baptism of Christ, when he speaks of this other baptism, and just as you see throughout the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 13, where he's preparing you for the coming of Christ and his ascension ministry, which gets at the very core of what our ecclesiology is. Because our ecclesiology is the ministry of the Spirit in the present age 
under, as, as the ascension body of Christ. How is it that this church becomes the body of Christ? By the mystic union of Christ, by what? The Holy Spirit. To reject the Holy Spirit is to reject inclusion into the body of Christ. It wasn't, the, it wasn't a baptism of repentance. That was John's baptism. It was an old covenant baptism. That's why in the New Testament, have you been, have you been baptized in the Spirit? Have you received the Spirit? That is like saying, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's all that is. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been effectually called in the language of our confession? Have you been regenerated in order to go, aha, have you had the blinders lifted? Have you had the ears opened? For those who could not see now can see. Those who could not hear can now hear. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that is being spoken of. So that when, what happened at Pentecost? The Spirit comes, everybody's preaching the gospel, and everybody's going, I'm hearing it. I'm seeing it. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what their response was. It wasn't all Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. It was all Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And he preached to Jesus Christ. Son. And if this is what's happened, Jesus is here, just like he said. And so that's the answer, I think. So in that sense, the foreshadowing season had not yet had the, 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 the Holy Spirit given in that manner, which is to enlighten the eyes. They were believing in the promises and yet awaiting the 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 the, the, age, the spirit age of the spirit, wherein they could see this particular person, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. They didn't see it. Yet. They would have been filled back. with the Spirit, right? They would be filled with the Spirit. I mean, well, it, it's interesting because in the Old Testament, you you don't quite get. I mean, you get this anointing of the Spirit. People were anointed, and that was often a, a term that was applied to a specific call or office. So that there was this idea of the Spirit coming upon Gideon, for instance. Um, but there, there's not the language of Pentecostal filling. That's the so same what, thing Andrew Holbrook said, was there's a lot of language about the Spirit upon a person, mm-hmm. but not necessarily in a yeah. person. Yeah. So it, it doesn't talk about the prophets being filled with the Spirit and seeing... Uh, oh, they were definitely given the Spirit, and the Spirit spoke through them. That's correct. Right, okay. But I, I think it's a little, that's different than this... This uh, universal or, or, you know, this this sort of nature. The idea, though, I mean, again, we have to remember, whenever you read about this age of the Spirit, or this, it's always talking about the Messiah. It's always talking about this issue of Messiah and recognizing and believing in the Messiah. So the only way you can understand the unforgivable sin is to understand that to reject the Spirit is to reject the revelation of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Spirit always edifies Jesus. Exactly. Always reveals Him. Yeah, and directs you to Him. Exactly. Yeah. Peter goes back to Joel in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. the, day the Pentecostal uh, uh, sermon that he gives and says this is the fulfillment of that promise in the Old Testament. So they're very, they are connected. That's right. So we can, we can conclude that one... Our confession at this point is, is uh, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, if you go study Reformation confessions and creeds, uh, this is truly an amazing, just, just I'm, I'm, I'm gawking at the brilliance of this. Um, if you put it, in a, as a historian, if you put it in a historical context, really, I don't know of another creed that does this in that era. And it's really quite helpful. I would say, and I don't say this just because others do things, the, I mean, Heidelberg does things that the Western does, so I'm not trying to be you know, news or anything. But, but there's just something really good here that I'm afraid a lot of people have lost. And we, and we don't tend to teach it a lot. So this has been a tough 
bless it, I grant you. Um, if you're interested in it, we're going to be doing our hermeneutics class, uh, How to Interpret Scripture, this Sunday school, beginning a couple of weeks, and there will be a two weeks that I do the covenant theology stuff again, and you'll hear some of this again, but we'll do other areas of how to interpret. But, but that's the first point I'd make. second point I want to make is, is how you treat the covenants is going to have profound impact on your, your ethical development. At the end of the day, what, what then should I do? How then should I live? And if you're confused, if you have covenant confusion, oh man, you're, you're going to be in some big trouble. You're going to go to the shelter of the mountain. You're going to be thinking you're supposed to do this and that. And, and, and he's trying to help you understand the law and aspects of that law. Like Again, one of the biggest confusions I'm always harping out here is that where he says if you go to the altar and you, you have a brother and son, leave the altar. And everybody just, well, where's my altar to that? Oh, that's the Lord's Supper. That's, that's what he said. No. Come on. Thanksgiving offering. One of the many offerings that they had. Thanksgiving offering and if you want to give thanks to God, show your thanks for obedience. That's what he's saying. You hear that all through the Old Testament. It's not, it's not sacrifice that I desire, right? It's what? Obedience. I don't, don't come over here and sacrifice. I mean, he was just quoting Old Testament to these guys. Saying, you're a Jew. You should know what the answer is. Quit coming to this thing and acting like you're holy if you're, if you're disobeying God. You know? And we take that out of context and we say, well, don't go to church or something until you're holy. <laughs> or don't partake of the Lord's Supper until you're holy. You know, and it's just crazy. So uh, you really got to be careful. Try to understand how, and there's a couple principles I've been talking about, how to understand the old relation to the new, or the old covenant relation to the new covenant. I give you another summary, study the little thing, and that will help you with ethics. Number three is by far what is so beautiful about this, this section of our creed is the way, yet again, it is Christ-centered. Yet again, it's going to teach us that, you know, these covenants were all meant to direct us to Jesus Christ. And when Christ came, there are aspects of those covenants that are fulfilled. And then there's aspects of those covenants that continue and yet were restored to them as justified people now. No longer afraid of the law, but embracing it as good news. Because it's teaching me how to flourish and how to glorify God. So we can talk some more, but thank you, and let's uh, close in prayer. Well, Father, thank you for this wonderful community and the privilege that we have to study together. And We pray for your spirit to enlighten us, enable us to see your scripture and to see Jesus in it. And We pray, Lord, for clarity. I know that a lot's been said here, and I suspect some are leaving still quite befuddled by some of this, but I pray you would encourage them to, at the very least, there's some categories that have now been planted, and, and I pray you fill those categories insofar as they're true with, with meaning and, uh, and guidance. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.